Today on this episode of the PV Roundup Special Spotlight. One of the main challenges that we have in treating patients with uveitis and uveitic macular edema is that we don't have any other local or periocular medications besides steroid. Today, Dr. Zamami and Sharma join the podcast to discuss insights from the 2023 annual meeting of the Association for Research and Vision and Ophthalmology in this PV Roundup Special Spotlight. Regeneron is pleased to support this educational resource for the healthcare professionals who provide retinal care. The content is solely the responsibility of the authors and does not necessarily represent the views of Regeneron or its affiliates. Hello, I'm Sumit Sharma from Kola Institute Cleveland Clinic. And I'm Parisa Amami from UC Davis, Sacramento, California. Great to speak with you today, Parisa. Thanks. It's great to be here, Sumit. So I'm really pleased to be here with you today in New Orleans, where we're attending the 2023 ARVO annual meeting. There's been a lot of interesting data presented so far, and I'm really interested to hear what you have seen and heard, what has caught your attention, and how that information might impact how you care for patients. Ready? So yeah, as you said, there have been a lot of great presentations on macular degeneration, wet AMD, dry AMD. A lot of studies on wet AMD, phase one to phase three trial. So a few of the studies that caught my attention, Davio trial was one of the um, trials that were presented. They were looking at the effectiveness and safety of tyrosine kinase inhibitor in patients with wet age-related macular degeneration. It is a tyrosine kinase molecule in a Duracert implant. So it's a bioerodible sustained release implant. The patients received the injection at the beginning of the study, and then they followed these patients for 12 months. So they presented the 12-month results. So they showed a good safety profile and a good tolerability for this medication. They also showed that the burden of the injections was decreased by using this implant. They also showed that 50% of the patients did not require any rescue anti-VEGF injection in the first six months of the study. Along the same line of this study was axitinib, which is another tyrosine kinase inhibitor on a hydrogel, on a biodegradable hydrogel which was injected intravitreally in these patients. And then they also showed a very good safety profile for the patients. And they also showed that within the first seven months after injection of this hydrogel, around 80% of the patients did not require any rescue anti-VEGF injection. So these are very interesting studies because as you know, one of the issues that we are facing as retinal specialists in wet AMD patients is durability of the injections that we give to our patients. It's a high burden for the patients, for their families. These patients are older. They have to come to the clinic at a preset intervals to receive their injections. Some of them have right issues. So if you're able to decrease the burden of the injection and increase the interval in between the injections, this is a huge thing that, that we can do for our patients. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the treatment burden has been a big impact on some of these patients. And it's really great to hear that there's a couple of new uh, products in the pipeline. Um, I think that tyrosine kinase inhibitors are a very interesting uh, product in that they have more than just anti-VEGF effects. So it'll be very interesting to see how much efficacy we see as we move forward with the clinical development programs. I know both companies are proceeding with further clinical development there. We've had a number of other topics in the uh, wet AMD space in terms of reducing treatment burden. I know that there have been a couple of trials that have looked at the, the real-world outcomes of uh, Farisimab now that it's been out for a little bit over a year. So the Truckee study was one of those. Did you uh, get a chance to see the data presentation there? 
Yeah, great point. So Trachea study was a real-world study looking at the patients who received furosemab for wet macular degeneration. So they included both patients tr- who were treatment-naive and also the patients who received other anti-VEGF injections prior to switching to furosemab. So they included more than 470 eyes of wet AMD patients. And they found that after switching to furosemab, the patients did really well. So they looked at the patients who received at least three furosemab injections, and they found that after three injections of furosemab, the patient's vision improved around four ETDRS letters in both of these two groups, treatment-naive or the patients who received prior anti-VEGF injections in the past. They also found that around 30% of these patients were fluid-free after three furosemab injections, which is um, very great results for furosemab. Yeah, I think especially in these treatment-resistant eyes that they've been putting in, right? So, you know, anytime a new drug is approved, all of us tend to use it in our most difficult-to-treat patients. Is that what you've seen in your practice, too? Yeah, so for most of my patients, I pretty much switch the patients who are treatment-resistant or the patients who I'm not able to extend past Q8-week injections. But I know that people are using furosemab for treatment-naive patients as well, and they're getting good results in those patients. How do you use furosemab in your practice? Similar, although I've started now to do some more directly to furosemab because of some of the data that we're seeing that it is safe and effective, and it's working really well to uh, get rid of fluid, maybe even a little bit better than what we've seen with a flibercept. Speaking of a flibercept, now we've been using two milligram of flibercept very routinely for a very long time. I think there's a lot of excitement in that the eight milligram of flibercept data came out recently, and some of it was shown here as well. Um, and I think uh, the really exciting part there is that it has a very uh, a PADUFA date that's coming up very quickly in June. And so were you able to pick up any of the uh, f- uh, high dose of flibercept data here? Yeah, so they presented Pulsar study, which is compared like a non-inferiority study looking at a flibercept two milligrams every eight weeks compared to a flibercept eight milligrams Q12 weeks and Q16 weeks. And they basically found that 16 weeks and Q12 weeks of eight milligrams of a flibercept is non-inferior to two milligrams Q8 weeks, which is what we normally use in our practice. And this was the AMD study, and they're also going to present a DME study looking at the same intervals and the same uh, medication. Yeah, I think the most interesting thing from that study was 80%, over 80% of patients were able to be maintained at either the Q12 or the Q16-week interval, which is a little bit more than you see with 2 milligram of flibercept. And so it's really interesting. I think it will help also reduce the treatment burden, and we'll hear very soon from the FDA about its approval. Yeah, that's great. I'm looking forward to see the results. How about dry AMD? Did you see any new dry AMD studies or any new data out there? Yeah, so, you know, the, the big the topic is geographic atrophy, and uh, both PEG-CETACOPLAN and Avacna-CAPTAD, PEG-ALL are the two that are the closest, with PEG-CETACOPLAN already being approved earlier this year. There's a number of topics looking at sub-analyses or reanalyses of the Derby and Oak study data where uh, PEG-CETACOPLAN was compared to sham injections, and A number of the findings were things that we've seen already for other GA studies, but some of the things were interesting in that photoreceptor loss specifically compared to RPE cell loss was one of the topics that was presented. And the photoreceptor loss data was even stronger than the RPE cell loss data. And what was most interesting there was in the first six months after starting therapy, patients had no photoreceptor loss, and then the slope of photoreceptor loss was significantly slower than the RPE cell loss beyond that up to two years. And so I think that's really interesting. I think that anytime you're protecting the photoreceptors, there's potential for improving vision. 
I know that we haven't really seen any change in visual acuity specifically, but then there were now some sub-analyses looking at specifically the patients with non-subfovial involvement, and there we are starting to see some differences in visual acuity, and that was specifically in the gather studies for Abacnacaptad, where they showed the percentage of patients losing three lines of vision was lower in the treated eyes versus the sham eyes. And so I think the, the G8 therapies are gaining some significant momentum. Pexetacoplan is already on the market and is available now, and Abacnacaptad will be, uh, have, has its PADUFA date in August, so we'll hear soon from the FDA about that too. And I think this is really interesting because geographic atrophy patients have had no options and they often come in and they're losing vision and we felt powerless to treat them because we haven't had options. So this is great to see one and potentially two new therapies to be approved this year for geographic atrophy. Yeah, that's a great point because as you mentioned, we have a lot of treatments for VET AMD, but we haven't had anything approved for dry AMD ever. So these are the first medications that we're seeing coming out for dry AMD patients. Yeah, I saw some interesting things where pay, where there's multiple other therapies, right? So the, the geographic atrophy pipeline is very, very robust, but these are by far the furthest along. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the geographic atrophy space in terms of reducing treatment burden, because I think we're going to rapidly see that that's a problem as uh, these therapies get approved and patients have to come in for monthly injections forever. Sumit, I understand that you presented some data here at Arvo. Can you share with us what you presented and what your data showed? Yeah, so I presented the first in human uh, data results for a anti-IL-6 antibody for uveitic macular edema. So this is uh, exciting because it's a new therapy that's a non-steroidal and hopefully avoids uh, the side effects that we see with steroids in the eye. And it allows us to have something potentially that's as safe as we've had with the anti-VEGF therapies but specifically for uveitic macular edema. So this is a monoclonal antibody designed to block uh, all forms of uh, IL-6 signaling. So it's an anti-IL-6 monoclonal antibody. And we looked at it in all patients with all types of uveitis with uveitic macular edema. And it was a phase one study that randomized patients to three different doses. And for all three doses, we found that it was safe and effective with a significant resolution of macular edema. 50% of patients had all fluid resolved completely with no signs of residual intraretinal fluid after three injections, and all patients showed some type of improvement with a reduction in the macular edema that, that was there. And it was overall very safe and very, very well tolerated with very few serious adverse events. The two that were noted in the study were both thought to be due to the underlying uh, uveitis flares and were not thought to be related to the drug. There was no steroid-related side effects, so we didn't see any uh, cataract formation. We didn't see any IOP in, uh, elevations, which is great because we haven't had anything like that. And uh, this has actually progressed now to a phase three program. There's two paired phase three clinical trials that are ongoing and enrolling. Yeah, this is great results. And I'm very excited to hear the results of phase three when they finish collecting patients. Because as you mentioned, one of the main challenges that we have in treating patients with uveitis and uveitic macular edema is that we don't have any other local or periocular medications besides steroid. And we all know the side effect of those medications in younger phakic patients, development of cataract, or the high risk of glaucoma in a lot of our patients. So it's exciting to see some non-steroidal medication is coming out. And it's exciting to see the results. Yeah. So we'll be excited to see what happens with phase three. You know, um, there things going to obviously change between phase one and phase three. But it was exciting enough that the phase one data led to directly to a phase three clinical trial. So 
Um, we'll see where that ends up. So, so let's switch gears a little bit because the other hot topic here has been artificial intelligence, as it is in everything, and specifically artificial intelligence and its use in imaging. And uh, we've seen everything from using artificial intelligence to predict systemic disease risk, to predict disease progression. What were some of the interesting things you saw here? Yeah, as you mentioned, it's like a big thing right now, AI, machine learning, a lot of studies coming out on like diabetic retinopathy, screening, diagnosis, predicting response to treatment, predicting visual acuity of the patients. There were some studies looking at various imaging biomarkers and the patient's long-term outcome. Some of the studies that I saw looked at, as you mentioned, prediction of systemic outcomes of the patients, prediction of heart attack, prediction of neurodegenerative disorders like Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's disease using AI, using retinal imaging. And then um, this hype about AI and machine learning, it reflected into one of the awards that was given this year to Tian Wang from Singapore. They looked at, they basically did a lot of studies on AI, on teleophthalmology in diagnosis of diabetic retinopathy patient, because as we know, it's a huge burden, diabetes, diabetic retinopathy. A lot of our patients come in with late diagnosis of the disease because they um, don't have any symptoms, so they don't go to their ophthalmologist, they don't get screened for diabetic retinopathy. And especially the patients who live in remote areas or in low-income countries, so it's a huge burden in those countries for these patients. So if we can deploy low-cost digital cameras to those areas and leverage AI teleophthalmology, we can capture those patients with early stages of the disease early on and treat them and prevent vision loss in these patients. I think that's really exciting. I think even, you know, you mentioned uh, other countries, but I think even in the U.S., we don't do a great job of screening. I think only something like the the, the recent Medicare data was like only 60% of patients with diabetes get an annual eye exam. And so anything we can do to improve that really helps. And putting these cameras either in primary care offices or other locations where the patients are going and allowing them to get the screening there will significantly help reduce the number of patients who end up with advanced end-stage disease where we're then doing surgery and hopefully reduce that burden and reduce the number of patients with vision loss from diabetes. I, I think this is all very, very exciting data. I think that we've got some very exciting things coming down the pipeline for both macular degeneration, both the wet form and the dry form. And I think the imaging data is very exciting as well. Anything else that you want to add that you saw that was interesting here? So there were some studies on various biomarkers, not necessarily imaging biomarkers, but inflammatory biomarkers in the diseases that we don't necessarily know them as inflammatory disorders, like macular degeneration, for example, diabetes, diabetic retinopathy. So there are studies coming out looking at the inflammatory origin of these diseases. And we'll see where that goes. We'll see if any of them translate into studies of medication or new medications for uh, macular degeneration or diabetic retinopathy. Oh, that's fantastic. Thanks for joining me today, Sumit. This has been great. It's been a pleasure to do this with you today. Thank you. And that's today's special spotlight. Thank you for joining us for this episode of PV Roundup Podcast. For more stories like this, visit us at pvroundup.com to subscribe to our weekly newsletters. Thoughts, comments, or suggestions? Please leave us a review on your preferred listening platform or email us at editorial at pvroundup.com. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or Google. You can also download our Amazon Alexa Flash Briefing, Medical News Roundup, and just ask, what's my Flash Briefing? Thanks today to our guests, Dr. Amami and Sharma. Join me next time for an episode where we cover the latest stories in the world of medicine. <laughs> <laughs>